Hello and welcome back to the podcast. In today's episode, I am bringing you a long-awaited episode, which is my own birth story for my daughter. I know some of you have been waiting for it for a little bit, and I have been telling you that I was going to record it. So here it is. In this episode, I am taking you through our conception journey to conceive our daughter, which trigger warning, I had a miscarriage. So we had a first pregnancy which resulted in a miscarriage and then we conceived. And I'm taking you through trying to navigate not knowing my cycles and trying to conceive and therefore not being successful for about 10 months. And then once we did get pregnant, navigating the system, again, not knowing my options and relying on my GP to help guide me. As an exercise physiologist, I am also letting you in on my biases and how they influenced my pregnancy and labor and postpartum journey and how it effectively led me to using the BRAIN acronym to determine my choices, but also advocate for those choices and be heard by the system. Finally, I am taking you through my rather, I think, fast birth story for my daughter and how I was in complete denial of even being in labor, but also how different my expectations of pre-labor were to what the reality actually was and how much of a shock that was to me. So I won't tell you anything more and I will leave you with the episode and hopefully you enjoy it. You are listening to Kapao with a Doula. I'm your host, Alicia, exercise physiologist and doula. And every week I chat with a mom or mom-to-be about all things pregnancy, birth and postpartum. The stories you will hear in this podcast are real and sometimes raw, but they are all told without any taboo. So grab yourself a cuppa, put your earphones in, relax and enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast. So today I will be both the guest and the interviewer at the same time because I will be telling you my own birth story for my daughter. So I will try and answer the questions like I asked them to my guests. I'll try and keep the podcast style the same and let's just dive into it. So to introduce myself, to anyone who doesn't know me, my name is Alicia. I am an exercise physiologist and a doula. I'm also the interviewer behind this podcast, in case you didn't know. In my family, there is myself, my partner Jason, and we have a daughter. And I'm currently 31 weeks pregnant at the time of this recording. We do not know the gender of this upcoming baby, so I can't tell you if we're having a boy or a girl. One of my favorite questions, and that's the one I try and always start the podcast with, is whether the guest always wanted to be a mom or not. And I think that's a really interesting question, so I love asking it at the start. In my case, did I always want to be a mom? The answer is, uh, I think... Like most of my guests, it's some of them, it's a straight yes, others, it's a straight no. And for the majority of people, I feel it's a, ah, I never really thought of it. So 
and I feel like I, I fit in that. I never really thought of it category. So for me, I I didn't really think of it until I think until I, I was eighteen. So when I was eighteen, I actually left home and I I came to Australia actually, and I became an au pair. So sort of like a, a nanny, but that lives at basically the the children's home that you're looking after and. I think from there on, so I think I was maybe about six months into my au pair journey, and that's when I really started to contemplate whether I wanted kids or not. I think before then, it was kind of a, I want to say it was sort of like a societal norm that to me it was it was pretty much accepted that because I was a heterosexual female that I would find a partner at some point and I would have children. And I didn't really think of it. I didn't even think or, or start to consider whether that was actually something I wanted. I felt like that's what you do. So when I was a nanny and therefore I was actually looking after two children, so they were at the time – uh, they were school-aged children. And so what I was responsible for was getting them ready in the morning, so getting their breakfast ready, getting them dressed for school, taking them to school, and then picking them up from school, doing homework if they had any, keeping them entertained, and then potentially making dinner. And so I think through that experience, it showed me a side of motherhood in a sense. Obviously, those were primary school age children. They were not babies. So obviously skipped a lot of years there. But it gave me a sense of what it was like to be essentially almost like a stay-at-home mom, basically. Because of that experience, it really got me thinking. And I went, actually, I do want to have children. This is something I want. So from there on, I knew that I wanted children and it wasn't just society telling me to have children or society telling me that it was you know, acceptable to have children after you found your partner and so on. I think that's really when I decided that I wanted to be a mom. I wasn't really hang hang up on the number. I was just thinking, I definitely want to be a mom one day. But to me, I wanted to be a mom after I finished my studies. And after I found a job or I had what what I considered to be a stable position. So both in terms of financial position, but also in terms of housing. So having a stable home and having a an income of sorts. When it came to uh, meeting Jason, so we met at uni actually. So we're both exercise physiologists. We met during our studies. It's extremely boring because we do the exact same job, basically. No, I'm kidding. Uh, it's really cool, actually. So we're both exercise physiologists. That's how we met. The topic of having children actually came up fairly quickly I think in our relationship and I think I was the one that initiated the conversation because I wanted to be clear I think and I wanted to put it on the table that my long-term plan was to find someone uh, to have children with and I didn't want to be with someone who wasn't keen on having children ever and to me that would have been a deal breaker so I think that's why I started the conversation early in our relationship, knowing that I didn't want children right then and there, but it was on my cards for the future, definitely for me. And so then when it came the time to conceive, so we we had both graduated from uni, we had both gotten a job, and we were in the process of buying a home, actually, or we were starting to consider buying a house. So we were doing all the, you know, going to the bank and, and 
asking for mortgages and so on and then starting the search. So we were in in that type of process, basically. One thing that I found really interesting is for all the years that I've been sexually active, you know, it was all about never getting pregnant. So it was always like, and I think this is a common theme amongst at least us women, we're told from the get-go that it only takes one time for you to get pregnant if you're not using any sort of protection. And so all these years, it's been about not falling pregnant. And then when we decided with Jason to have children, so therefore, you know, we removed contraception, it didn't happen straight away. And that was really a shock because for all these years, I thought if at any point we remove contraception, well, surely I'm going to fall pregnant because that's what society's been telling me all these years. And then we do. We intentionally want to fall pregnant and nothing happened. It was extremely frustrating and it was really hard to adapt to that concept and to really accept it. The other thing was I wasn't on contraception. I haven't been on the pill for many, many, many years because I got a lot of side effects from the pill actually and I tried two different types. Both were the mini pills, so with the minimum amount of hormones and I reacted to both really badly. So I, I haven't been on contraception for a long, long time. And so even despite that, I don't think I knew my cycles and I understood what happened. Sounds really silly to say that, right? Because obviously I know what my periods are and I I know what it means, but I don't think I understood what ovulation was and what how it manifested in my body. So up until we started to want to conceive, I never, I don't think I actually really paid attention to, you know, the ovulation part of my cycle and what symptoms I was getting either before or even straight after ovulation. So therefore, when it came time to conceive, I actually had no idea when was the correct time or when was the most optimal time to actually have intercourse. That was quite interesting because so when we started trying to conceive for more than a few months, for probably about six months, it was like, oh, maybe it's just normal because, well, who knows, right? I mean, they do say that the average healthy couple takes about 10 to 12 months to conceive, right? But after six months of nothing happening, I was kind of worried really. And I was kind of thinking, well, surely there's a problem. And to me, the problem had to be, it had to be from me, obviously, even though we know that when trying to conceive in this journey, there's two parties, there's male and female, and the problem can be from either side or from both, or there could be no problem as well. But anyway, in in my mind, after six months of trying and nothing happening, I thought I had a problem. So then I, I started looking, I was tracking my period using an app. And so I started looking at that app and looking at when it said I would be ovulating. And so therefore we started timing the intercourse that way, which kind of became a chore really at this point. For us, after six months of nothing happening, when we really wanted it to happen then, then having to sort of time intercourse, so to speak, it kind of became a bit of a chore really. Like it it took a bit of the fun out of the equation really. But anyway, we did it. And so it still wasn't happening. And so that's when I actually purchased ovulation kits And I did those and I realized that actually I wasn't ovulating on day 15 or 16 like my app was saying. I was actually ovulating before, but again, I I wasn't in tune enough with my body. I don't think I was looking enough for those cues, you know, those really 
subtle. Some, for some people, it's subtle symptoms. For others, it's really obvious symptoms. Um, and for me, it was quite subtle. And so therefore, I was, it kind of really sounds silly saying that on the podcast. But yeah, I had no idea about when I was ovulating. So therefore, I don't think we were timing intercourse really well. And so therefore, we were not conceiving. Who knows? I mean, obviously, we know that it takes between 10 and 12 months to conceive for a healthy couple. So even when you time it well, you could still not conceive for a number of reasons. But so anyway, after all this time, so at that point, it had been nine months of trying to conceive and still nothing, right? And then on, so on the ninth month of trying to conceive, I forgot to add, but I was doing pretty much pregnancy tests, I think pretty much every month, unless my period came early, but I tried to do the test before my period anyway, like a day or two before. So I was kind of cheating anyway. And so pretty much every month I was doing a pregnancy test and it was negative, right? Like there was nothing. I was even doing the holding the pregnancy test to the light or seeing with the flash if there was a, <laughs> if there was a line that was hidden. There was no line there. Okay. Like there was nothing. But I was, I was so hopeful. Okay. Anyway, I was getting disappointed every month. On the ninth month, we got a positive pregnancy test. So I was actually pregnant. That was insane. I had never seen a line on a pregnancy test before, right? So I was like, wow. And it was so faint. It was actually, a, it, it wasn't a strong line. I mean, it was there. Like I didn't have to use the flash or hold the, the test to the light to see it. It was faint. And I mean, I think I tested maybe two days before my period as well. So, you know, it, it was quite early days as well. So anyway, so on the ninth month, we conceived. We were beyond thrilled. It was, it finally happened. It was almost a shock at this point because it had taken us nine months. So it was almost like, oh, what? It worked. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and then from there on, we're like, oh, okay, what do we do now? It was all like, not panic, but it was all like so surprising, even though we had been trying intentionally for nine months. And unfortunately, that pregnancy ended up in a miscarriage. So I lost a pregnancy at about six to seven weeks. One day I felt really off on one of those days. So I wasn't getting morning sickness much at that point. I don't even think I had nausea at that point. I had maybe some bloating. But one morning, it was a Saturday, and I woke up, and I just felt I just felt off. Like I woke up, and I was really, really tired, and I, it, something didn't feel right. And so I, I rested for that morning. I watched TV, and then I remember feeling like there was blood. So I went to check, and there was blood, and it wasn't just a little bit. It was... It was pretty much like my period came. So we went to the hospital. I, I didn't want to go personally because I, I kind of gathered what was happening and I kind of knew that there wouldn't be much that, that could be done at that point. I did maybe hope that they could give me maybe some progesterone or something. But anyway, we went to the ED and the doctor there was actually really good and he was really kind because I feel like this can be a, a really difficult place for some people. So for us, it took us nine months to conceive. That was our first pregnancy and we basically lost the pregnancy like the next week. It was devastating. We were devastated. And I know that some doctors, maybe they think, oh, look, you were not even that far along. We hadn't had a scan yet, right? Like I had literally just confirmed the pregnancy with a blood test. And I think I had booked in for a dating scan, 
but that was maybe the week after or, you know, soon after that. And so we hadn't had any scans yet. And, you know, we lost our pregnancy. And that was that was devastating. And I remember, I'm remembering it, and it's it's really sad. It was a difficult time. And, and I remember just when we got home and after a few days, I was on a mission to get pregnant. I just wanted to be pregnant because it took us nine months to get there. And I was thinking it's going to take us another nine months to get pregnant again. It's so long. It was just so hard. And then we got pregnant the next month. That was insane. (laughs) So what happened is I basically passed the miscarriage naturally. I didn't need any help. I got a scan done a few days later and they showed that everything was gone basically. And so from there on, no one really said anything about needing to wait between pregnancies as I said for me I just really wanted to be pregnant it it had taken us so long to get there and that was something we really wanted yeah I just didn't want to wait so then we continued because basically at that point that was sort of like a reset so it was like I had my period so I went back to ovulation tests because at that point I was doing the ovulation tests um, every month. So I did the ovulation tests and I remember I, I started them early because I was still trying to find the exact uh, window that my ovulation was on. So I did them, right? And I literally, so I was using the ones with the little smiley face and I never got an ovulation. According to those tests, which I was doing just like the instruction said, you know, starting early, like before you think that you're ovulating. And then I was seeing that the smiley face was changing towards ovulation, but it never got to the ovulation smiley face. So in this cycle, to me, I never ovulated, right? We still had intercourse, but I never ovulated. So I'm like, okay, well, that's another month gone. Okay, cool. And so then came the time for my period. And so at that point, I I knew the symptoms I would get before my period, right? And I wasn't getting any of them, like a few days before my period. So I'm thinking, okay, this is all strange. And because I just had the miscarriage, I'm thinking this has probably thrown my whole cycle out of whack. And now my body is really confused. So I don't think anything of it. But then at some point I do a pregnancy test because I'm thinking, okay, what are the chances, right? So I do a pregnancy test. It's 100% positive. There's definitely a line there. And I'm thinking, oh wow and I knew it wasn't remnants from from the previous pregnancy because I had been doing pregnancy tests after we had the miscarriage and those were negative so I knew it wasn't my HCG level had gone back to zero and so therefore I was like oh what (laughs) that was that was totally unexpected (laughs) so so on the 10th month of trying to conceive we actually conceived and that was a different level of shock because even though I was on a mission of trying to get pregnant again, when it actually happened again, I thought, oh no, I should have waited now. I I shouldn't have gotten pregnant straight away. That's definitely, I'm definitely going to have a miscarriage again now. So I had this whole anxiety of it's happened too soon. Surely my body is just going to reject it and I'm going to have another miscarriage. And the thing is, I I did think to myself after the miscarriage, I thought, well, I really want to get pregnant. I really wanted to be a mom, definitely. But it put a lot of things in perspective. And I had to accept that by trying to get pregnant and trying to conceive, I was accepting 
pregnancy in whatever form it would take, which included miscarriages, which before my miscarriage, I never considered that. So to me, before my miscarriage, I think I had heard of miscarriages and I knew what they were, blurrily. So it wasn't, the concept wasn't really clear, let's say. Because I don't, like, I feel like you can know what something is, but until you've experienced it, you don't really understand the depth of it, right? And I know I'm talking about it like I had, like, potentially like I had a miscarriage way further down the track. But for me, I felt absolutely devastated after that miscarriage. And I think we need to normalize saying it because it's not oh well at least you were early this was our baby we had already planned a lot of things right we projected ourselves being parents we we could see it you know we had we had a, a an estimated due date and so on and we knew that you know in october we'd be parents and so on and when it didn't happen that was crushing devastating it was it was so sad so I know that some people might think, oh, yeah, but, you know, you were only seven weeks. Yes, but it's all the, the idea and the projections that just got shattered. And I obviously no one knew that I was going to get pregnant the next month. But even then, you know, it's it's not the same. You've always, you know, I've had three pregnancies. I didn't have two. I've had three pregnancies. This is part of my pregnancy journey. It's not just, oh, let's just discard it because, you know, that baby didn't didn't come in the world. It happened. So anyway, so on the 10th month, we conceived and there was obviously a lot of anxiety there from from the miscarriage. And so therefore, it was a very difficult first trimester because I was so sure anytime I cramped, anytime there was a twinge, anytime I didn't have morning sickness, anytime I didn't feel sick, anytime I didn't feel tired. I was so sure that something had happened. And I, I didn't get morning sickness. I had a little bit of nausea. It was mostly afternoons, actually, like towards the later part of the afternoon that I would get sometimes nausea. I got really tired, but I never vomited, actually. So that was good. But therefore, for me, because you hear everywhere that when you're pregnant, you're just going to vomit a lot in the first trimester. Well, when I didn't, well, obviously, there was a problem there. So, so that was a problem for me. That's basically my journey into um, conceiving our daughter. So in terms of the pregnancy, so we did a dating scan. And when we got to the dating scan, that was a huge milestone for us. And it was so good. It was so, so good to see the baby's heartbeat, to see that it was tiny, really. It was a teeny tiny thing, but it was so good to see. I loved scans in, in this pregnancy because it was just so reassuring after having a miscarriage, after having a loss, to just see the baby, to see the baby's heartbeat, to hear it, to see the baby move. It was great. I loved it. In terms of models of care, so I did not know anything about models of care. I don't think I I knew any options really. I knew the hospitals we had around us. To me, having a hospital birth was a no-brainer because against society, because, well, my mom gave birth in a hospital. So to me, it made sense for me to give birth in a hospital. It was almost what I expected to do. So I don't even think I thought of a home birth. And I think when I started thinking of potentially having a home birth, to me, I thought I can't do it for my first. I'd have to see how my first labor goes to potentially, if I want to, if we want to have a second child, 
to potentially have a home birth then if that's something we want. Again, that's all basically my thoughts. you got to do what, what works for you. And for me, the hospital ended up working out pretty good. So I went to my GP, we confirmed the pregnancy, we got the dating scan. And then from there on, I was lucky that I had a GP who actually knew about options and could actually tell me what options I had. So he actually referred me to the midwifery group practice at my local hospital. And I think at that point I was 12 weeks because I had had my first trimester scan. I think I got really lucky to get in because, well, you know, like you, you, you've probably heard stories of women that just don't get in into their MGP, even when they've um, sent a referral really early on. So anyway, so somehow I got really lucky. I got into the uh, midwifery group practice and I, I didn't know much about what it was, but I understood that you'd have the same midwife and that at that point I had started to do a bit of research. I was on you know Facebook groups. I was on different pregnancy communities. I was starting to listen. I had been listening to birth and pregnancy podcast, I think since before we started to conceive. So I had a little bit of education from that. Now that, you know, I was pregnant, it was obviously a whole different understanding of it, right? Like things were put into a different perspective. So then I got referred to the MGP at my local hospital. That was an interesting experience because during the first trimester, I felt really lost in the system. So I felt like unless there was a major problem, I didn't have anyone to ask or reach out to. I couldn't ask questions because I didn't have my midwife yet. You know, she hadn't been assigned to me somehow. My GP could only really answer questions or refer me if I had, you know, if I was sick or if there was anything concerning regarding the pregnancy. But he wasn't there to answer questions around... <laughs> like anything, you know, birth related and, and general pregnancy related, right? And so therefore I felt really lost. I, I felt like there was just no one to turn to. I think I was 16 weeks when I first had a phone call with my midwife. So I didn't even meet her first. She We did a, a phone call and in, basically an intake. And even then it felt very medical. So it was all about, you know, my, my medical history. It was all about, you know, getting forms and questionnaires sorted. But it wasn't about, you know, I mean, she did, she did say, you know, do you have questions? It just didn't feel like I had the space to ask questions yet. So then I had to wait until I actually met her and I was lucky that she would come to my house and we'd do the appointments there. And she was quite good in that she wouldn't rush me. Like she wouldn't say, oh, look, I'm, I'm on the clock. You know, I've kind of I've kind of got things to do. So she would take the time. I think all I want to say with this is I felt in the first and the early second trimester, it was all a bit... Like I was left to my own device, really. So I wanted information. I wanted education. I wanted, you know, I wanted stuff. I wanted to know stuff. I wanted to know a lot of things, right? And I didn't know how to prepare for a birth, right? Like first time mom, I had been listening to podcasts, but when it came from to my own birth, I'm like, well, where do I start, you know? <laughs> Like I had been listening to all these podcasts about women that said, this is how I want my birth to be and this is what I want. And I was like, but how do they come to that conclusion? Like, how do they know what options is, you know, how do they know what they want? <laughs> so I had to do a lot of research, right? So the way I did my research is I read a lot 
So instead of just Googling stuff, I went on government websites. So I checked out, I was in Queensland, so I checked out, you know, Queensland Health. I checked out their guidelines. They've usually got, I think they have a pregnancy, baby and mom, like PDF. So I read that. And then from there on, it basically opened doors for questions. So therefore, I would read something and I would go, oh, that would be a great thing to discuss with my midwife, or that would be a great thing for me to dive deeper into. So then I actually started researching based on that. So there would be little things that would lead me to then research further into. And so that's actually how I ended up educating myself, really. I also read books. I borrowed some from the library and podcasts were my main education, really. I also did a online hypnobirthing course, which was excellent. It was all video-based and you could watch them as as many times as you wanted and they were quite short so therefore it was it was really good to talk about basically breathing techniques relaxation methods what happens during birth you know the physiology behind you know the uterus the hormones and so on right and the different stages of birth and so on so between that hypnobirthing course and podcasts mainly I thought I had a pretty good picture let's say, or at least a picture in my mind of what birth could look like. And I think, like I said, in my pregnancy series, the part two, I think I wanted. So at that point, that's when I started to to decide what I wanted for my birth or how I wanted my birth to be, you know, in as much as I know that birth isn't predictable and I knew that I had to stay flexible but I had, let's say, preferences of what I wanted and then what I didn't want. One of the things that I I didn't know, and I only understood that later when I took a, a big step back into motherhood and when I started this podcast, is when I realized that one of the things I was doing, because I am an allied health professional, in our studies, we've actually been taught to research and to question and so therefore, when it came to it, when it came to, you know, my, my pregnancy journey, I would question things. So when I was told, for example, if at 40 plus five, you haven't given birth, we'll start talking about an induction. I would question that. And I would say, well, why 40 plus five? That's a very specific number. Why 40 plus five? Because I've read at other hospitals that they go to 41 plus five. So why 40 plus five then? I always had this. No, I didn't always have it. I think there was a point in in my degree where I realized that health professionals are just people because well I'm I'm a health professional I'm an allied health professional and I'm just a person right and I realized that they're just people and sometimes they can make mistakes right so for example GPs doctors obstetricians they're people right so sometimes the advice they give you can be outdated or it can be in total disagreement with what you'd like to do and that's fine. You can tell them that this is not something you want to do, right? But somehow society tells us that if we're given medical advice, we have to follow it. And that's not necessarily true. We don't have to blindly follow medical advice. We can ask questions. We can ask about, you know, alternatives. We can ask about why is that the best option for me? What are the risks if I don't do it? What are the risks, you know, of me doing this? And this now might sound like the brain acronym to you. Benefits, risk, alternative, intuition, nothing. So I, I have been doing that 
before I even knew what the BRAIN acronym was. So when it came to my pregnancy, that's what I was doing. So I was questioning my midwife, which was probably really annoying for her because I'd be like, yeah, okay, but why? Or I would say, well, I'm not doing that. Like, you know, she would say, oh, this is how we do it. And I'd be like, okay, well, cool, but I'm not doing it, you know. Or if she happened to say something like, generally, we do this, I'd be like, okay, well, that's in general. So what do you do for people like me that don't want to do what is generally done? And so therefore, I was probably the biggest pain in her bum, really. But I was questioning. And I can tell you, you need to question because it opened doors. So all of a sudden, and I didn't get that far, right? But I was told that I would I would basically have the induction talk at 40 plus 5. But then I said, yeah, but why 40 plus 5? And so all of a sudden, this date got moved back to 41 plus 6. And I was like, well, that's great for me. If I, if, you know, if I still haven't given birth at 41 plus however many days, you know, I'm potentially pushing back an induction. Good. But when I was thinking about it, I was thinking, but what about all the other women that don't ask questions because they don't know to ask questions? That's not fair. Because if you're telling one person 40 plus 5, but you're telling another person 41 plus 6, that's not fair on, on the person that's getting induced at 40 plus 5 because it's a number. That is not fair. And so I think that's when I started to consider that like I was doing something right by questioning and it was opening different doors. But then I was thinking about all the other women that don't question and those doors don't open for them. And that was making me really sad, actually. And so anyway, all of that rent to say, ask questions, say why, say what happens if I do this? What happens if I don't do this? What happens if I do nothing? I love this question of what happens if I do nothing. I find this is the best question ever because usually when medical professionals give you their professional advice, they want you to do something with it. So they want you to take action. So when you say, what happens if I do nothing? <laughs> they they kind of go, mm, well, let me think about this. And that's when they come up with alternatives, actually. So when you ask the nothing question, you're usually getting alternatives actually set to you. So I find this is a great question to ask just as a side note. So anyway, back to my story. So I asked my midwife a lot of questions. So I was lucky, again, the the right place, the right time. I was really lucky that I had my own midwife. She would be, it would be the same midwife every time she would come to see me in my home and we'd do the visits there and I could ask questions. There was not, I never felt like she was on the clock and I never felt like she was trying to rush through things. So that was good. I, I always felt like I had time to ask her questions and, and, you know, obviously building rapport was really essential at that point because, well, something I didn't consider is at that point, I'm thinking, well, that's great. I'm seeing the same midwife. She will be at my birth. <laughs> I never considered that I'm seeing the same midwife. She could not be at my birth because she could be at someone else's birth or she could be not on call because she's just attended a birth. I never considered that at any point. And so therefore, if that had been the case, I would have had 
a very unknown midwife because she was the only one I had ever seen. And so therefore, I would have had a totally unknown midwife at my birth. So therefore, building rapport there would have been totally useless. In terms of birth preferences, when it came to basically imagining my birth, so I'm a very visual person. So for me, when it came to, you know, you know, I did the hypnobirthing course and they, they obviously talk about birth preferences and trying to visualize and trying to imagine your birth. That was so aligned with me. To be fully prepared, I had to see the space. I went to hospital at some point and I asked to see the room, the one of the birthing suites, so that I could actually visualize the space because I knew that I wanted to stay at home for as much of my, of my labor as I could, but then I would go to hospital. And in my preparation, if I didn't know what the suite looked like or what it could, you know, semi look like, I couldn't imagine anything, right? So at some point I got I got a, a tour of the suite that was basically opening one door showing me what the suite looks like. Perfect. And and I got to see also what equipment they had. Well, I shouldn't say equipment. <laughs> I sound like an EP right now. What birth accessories, props they had, which basically, interesting thing actually, side note. So as an exercise physiologist in that pregnancy, I was really active. So I... I knew what I wanted to do in terms of my health and I knew how to stay strong and how to try and avoid a lot of pregnancy aches like hip pain, uh, pubic symphysis pain, back pain, you know, and, and so on, right? So I was doing a lot of walking and I was doing strength training in a manner that was safe and appropriate for my body and my physical condition. When it came to the third trimester, it was really interesting because I had been quite conservative with obviously the, the loading. And in the third trimester, what was really funny is I got restricted by my belly. <laughs> so that was really funny because I was doing deadlifts. And then I was like, oh, I can't bend any further because I feel like I'm squashing myself. So <laughs> Which is something like even though I had the theory in, in my head of, you know, what to do and regressing the exercises and dropping weights. And, and I knew that in the third trimester, you can get restricted. I don't think I ever considered the belly as a restriction somehow. So I found it really funny when it happened to me. And I was like, oh, there's something in the way there. That's funny. So it gave me a deeper understanding of what it's like to exercise during both obviously pregnancy and then during the postpartum period as well. So all of that to say I obviously exercised quite religiously almost. I was doing I was probably almost more regular in my exercise training then than I had been before because all of a sudden it was like I need to stay strong and I need to be strong for obviously when the baby is here. And that will help my recovery, which I'll never know if it did or not, because I don't know the opposite, right? So, and so therefore, when it came to imagining my birth and thinking about what pre-labor and labor was going to be like, I had this whole idea that I would be really active. And I had been sitting on my exercise ball for a lot of my pregnancy. So I'd been doing the, the hip sways. I'd been sitting on it to try and, you know, help with the positioning. I'd been doing a lot of pelvic movements and so on, right? <laughs> and so therefore I thought, well, when it came to the birth, that will definitely be something that I will use. And it was really funny because when it came to the actual birth, I was not active at all. Like I knew all the principles of using gravity and being active and moving and helping the descent of the baby and so on. And I just didn't want to do any of it. 
<laughs> it was hilarious. So anyway, just as a side note, that's how I imagined my birth. Obviously, because of my bias as an exercise physiologist, I was thinking I'd be super active and I'd be moving, swaying, rocking, and so on. And I didn't. <laughs> There you go. Imagining my birth, I wanted a vaginal hospital birth with little to no intervention, probably more towards the no interventions, but if there had to be any as minimal as possible, I was wanting to try and have a drug-free birth. So try and birth without any drugs. I knew of pharmacological and pain reliefs. So I had asked my midwife what an epidural was. I don't think actually thinking of the epidural, and this is something I mentioned in another episode, I actually did not understand the package, so to speak, that the epidural comes with. So I had asked what happens during the epidural. So in terms of, you know, the needle goes in your back and I had asked, you know, where in your back does it go? Because I know I knew of the spinal cord and so on. I didn't want to be paralyzed. And so then I, I had asked, well, you know, what happens after they put the needle and, and so on. But I actually never asked and I, I didn't know to ask. And it was never mentioned about the fact that when you get an epidural, you also get a catheter put in to drain your urine because you're not able to potentially feel that the bladder is full and therefore empty it. And you also get a drip as well, which potentially they also augment your labor. So therefore, again, something I didn't know and I didn't ask, and there you go, you know, lack of information there. So so I knew of the epidural, I knew of the gas, I knew the gas was, for the most part, what I heard about the gas was it made me feel really nauseous but for some women it, it worked so I was sort of open to that the epidural was a very last resort thing I knew morphine was an option but it didn't sound like it was a common option so it sounded like it was more if you have a really difficult labor potentially a back labor and so on so it didn't really seem to be a thing and then I knew of uh, sterile water injections as well which again sounded like it was more for back labors and it didn't sound like it was something they did very often either at the hospital. That was pretty much the options I was given. And then I was basically told to stay at home for as long as possible during your labor and then come into hospital when you really feel like you just, you can't take it or, or potentially something's happened. Like, you know, your waters have broken and they're colored potentially, or there is maybe a bit of blood or there's reduced movements or something like that, right? So I was happy with that because I wanted to stay at home for as long as possible. I wanted to not have anyone touch me, tell me things, whatever. I, I didn't want I wanted to be in hospital for the least amount of time I could be. So that was perfect for me. In terms of my third trimester, it was amazing. I didn't have any aches or pains at any point. I did I didn't feel huge. I, I felt big. I mean, you know, I went to 40 weeks, so I felt pretty big, but I didn't feel like I could still, you know, get off the couch and stuff. I had a little bit of problem putting my shoes on. <laughs> the belly got in the way. But other than that, I was I was really mobile no aches, no pains. I could have been pregnant until 42, 43 weeks, pretty much. So no, I was fine there. And uh, there was something really funny about, so you can have your baby, you know, your baby's considered full term from 37 weeks. And when I hit 37 weeks, I feel like I was almost anticipating to go into labor on that day, on that specific 37 weeks day. And it didn't happen. <laughs> so therefore, I got really disappointed. 
I got really down. Like uh, I had heard of women that get really frustrated and they get really impatient, especially as they get towards their due date or even past their due date, right? And by the way, I don't like the term due date, but obviously that is how the hospital puts it. You have an estimated due date. As a side note, in terms of my due date, I only told my, my actual due date to our close family and that was it even to my friends I never said when my actual due date was I would say whether it was towards the start the middle or the end of the month that was about it just because I didn't want people to be messaging and saying oh have you given birth yet you know so that was how I went about it and that was helping or almost <laughs> I mean it, it didn't work but the aim was to try and reduce the stress around this one particular date that uh you know someone had decided that I was due on this one particular day in the month I now talk about due month I prefer the term due month because pretty much you know you can be from your due date you you can be due with air quotes three weeks before that date or two weeks after really so you've you've pretty you've almost got two months there so I talk about the due month really when it came to 37 weeks I was fully expecting to have the baby on that day so it didn't happen and mentally I I hit a wall on that day and that was that was something I wasn't prepared for so I'm putting it out there just so to say that you know mentally I was doing perfectly fine and then 37 weeks came I didn't go into labor and I hit a wall that was terrible and from there on it was mentally it was really difficult because I both wanted my baby to stay in to be as matured and the lungs maturing and to be as big as she as she could be we didn't know the gender back then again so in this episode if you hear me say she before the birth we had no idea that it was a girl we didn't find out by choice we wanted the surprise at birth and we got it so at the time we didn't know but she was a girl one of the reason why we we didn't find out just as a side note is I love surprises to start with so does my partner Jason and also it didn't matter the gender of the baby did not matter there was no need for us we didn't need to know the gender to imagine ourselves with the baby we knew that it was a baby and the, the gender was irrelevant to us so anyway there you go so then the pregnancy unfolded so 37 weeks went by and passed 38 weeks 39 weeks and at a, I think at 38 weeks I lost my mucus plug so I thought wow okay cool 38 weeks great I'm going to go into labor now and I was still working by the way, so I worked until 39 and a half weeks only because I wanted to and because I didn't want to be at home doing nothing. So there was that thing where I had this feeling, well, I had this thought that if I'm at home and I'm on maternity leave essentially before the baby comes, well, I'm not contributing to society. I'm not contributing to the household. So I'm basically lazy. So I didn't want to be lazy and I, I felt really good as well. You know, that obviously helps. I didn't feel like I needed a break and I didn't feel like I needed to rest, even though my midwife kept telling me to rest, but I I, I just don't rest. I, I don't nap. This is not something I, I'm not able to nap through the day because the sun's out, <laughs> my body knows. So it's not time to sleep for me. So therefore, yeah, I, I didn't, and I didn't feel tired. 
that, that was a good thing for me. You know, I didn't feel tired. So I worked until 39 and a half weeks. And I think this is part of the reason why I didn't go into labor before then, because I think subconsciously I wasn't finished working. So I had put out the date of my maternity leave as close to my due date, you know, equits as possible, because I didn't want to be at home bored and waiting for two or three weeks. I had put it as close to that date as I could. But then there was a point where I kind of needed to tell my work when I was finishing and I kind of needed to be finished too, you know. I kind of needed to wrap things up. I think subconsciously, because I knew the day that I was finishing, I feel like somehow, and this is this is a theory I have, right? <laughs> I'll never be able to prove if it's right or wrong. I feel like this inhibited the start of my labour. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? So at 38 weeks, I lost my mucus plug. Nothing happened. At 39 weeks, a week later, I lost my mucus plug again. Nothing happened. <laughs> and I was getting really frustrated by, by then because even though this whole pregnancy, I was like, I'm not going to get bogged down into the whole 40 weeks being overdue. I'm not going to buy into it. I'm, I'm going to be stronger than that. When I came to 40 weeks, there was no pressure yet from the hospital but I could feel it I could feel it coming I was anticipating it so therefore I was stressing myself out basically 39 weeks nothing happened 40 weeks I got to 40 weeks and nothing happened I think I lost my mucus plug on that day and I was so disappointed because I was so sure on the actual due date I would go into labor now what well, didn't? Nothing happened. And I, to my knowledge, I never had Braxton Hicks. I never felt any contractions. I never had any signs. So I was like, well, okay, I'm just, it's just not happening. So I wasn't sure if I'd ever do a stretch and sweep. This was something where I researched it. I knew what it was, but I, I, I just, I wasn't sure if I ever wanted one. So when 40 weeks came by, mentally, I was, I think I was putting the pressure on myself to go into labor soon so that the hospital wouldn't pressure me. So therefore, I decided to get a stretch and sweep at 40 plus one. That wasn't too bad of an experience. What it really was good for, from my perspective and in my experience, was it gave me the reassurance that my cervix was open, so I was one and a bit centimeter dilated already and my midwife said that my baby's position was really good and she could also feel my waters so she was basically telling me that the baby was pretty much in an optimal position my cervix was already starting to dilate so I knew then that my body was actually doing something that I didn't know it was doing so that really helped me to give me a lift to go okay there's something happening. I just don't, I didn't know about it, but now I know. So, okay, my body's actually doing something. It can birth. Okay, great. So then, you know, I got the pickup I needed. 40 plus two, nothing happened. And then 40 plus three. So on that day, I was meant to get a second stretch and sweep. My midwife said, I'll give you another one in 48 hours if you want. And I was like, oh, okay, sure. I mean, the first one wasn't too bad. And I was like, okay, well, I mean, she was going to come to my to my house and just you know check me check my blood pressure check the baby and so on and then this and then I would decide on at that point if I wanted one or not so on that morning so 40 plus 3 I am I woke up in the middle of the night and I felt like I don't know if I felt like I was having cramps but I felt like I needed to go to the toilet so I went to the toilet and did my bladder and then I was like 
hmm, okay, I think maybe I'm getting cramps. But I think in my head, because I had been waiting since 37 weeks to go into labor, at this point I'm in total disbelief, right? So I'm not even really sure if I know that I'm having cramps. If that even makes any sense, what I'm saying. It was 1.30 in the morning and somehow this was the only night where every other night we'd gone to bed early. This was the only night where we didn't go to bed early. We went to bed at 11, whereas we'd usually go to bed like 9.30 or 10, you know, or even 9 because I had been really exhausted in the days and weeks before that point. And I actually, I remember that some nights I was in bed by 9 because I was just really tired. And I was like, I don't even want to watch TV because I'm too exhausted. Only night where I go to bed at 11, <laughs> I went into labor the next day. <laughs> what are the chances, right? So I wake up at 1.30 and I've gone to the toilet because I was thinking, well, maybe it was my bladder. Anyway, it's empty now. And so then I try and go back to sleep and I can't go back to sleep. I'm, I'm kind of it, like I'm not in pain, but I'm just like, there's something preventing me. It's a little bit uncomfortable. So I wake up Jason and I go, oh, Jason, I think we need to time these. And he's like, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> and he's thinking, you're in early labor, if anything. Uh, we don't need to time them. So I'm like, okay, so so I go, oh, okay, maybe not. <laughs> but then 10 minutes later, or, you know, whatever time it was later, I'm like, no, nah, I think we need to time them. So then he wakes up, and that's how unprepared we were. We didn't even have a timing app on the phone, right? So, so it's like 1.45 in the morning, and he's downloading a timing app on the, on the uh, Play Store. So we download it. And then we start timing and somehow my my now contractions that I I didn't know they were contractions at the time are actually five minutes apart and they're extremely regular. We kind of wait because my midwife had said, oh, call me when it's been, you know, they've been this part, this frequently and so on, right? So I kind of wait, but then I'm like, well, I kind of need to let her know because I remembered that she had told me two days before that she was due uh, to go, f potentially to go for an induction birth on that day, actually. And so I was thinking, oh, I need to let her know because I don't know if that induction is happening in the morning or if it's happening later or if it's still happening, I don't know, because that induction was at a different hospital to the one that I was meant to birth at. So therefore I was like, oh, I need to tell her because, well, maybe she's going to go for that one. And so therefore she needs to find me another midwife, right? So at this point, I was fully accepting of the fact that she probably wouldn't be at my birth because she had told me that she had to go to this induction birth. So I call her and I think in in the spirit of me being me, I kind of downplayed it, right? So I called her and I'm kind of like, oh yeah, look, I'm all right, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know why, I don't know why I had to downplay it. I had to be like, like I wasn't in a lot of pain, but I mean, I was starting to get a little bit uncomfortable, right? But I, I made it sound like I, there was no pain at all, right? Or there was no uncomfortableness. It was all perfect roses and stuff, right? So she said, oh, well, that that's okay. It sounds like you're in, you know, you're in pre-labor. It can go on. Obviously, it can go on for a while. So, you know, just try and rest, be active, take a shower if you feel the need to and so on, right? So I'm like, okay, cool. So then I hang up. Pretty much straight away, things just started to ramp up. At this point, I can't sleep because my plan was to try and sleep 
for as much of the labor as I could, if I could, right? Especially because we hadn't slept much yet. So at this point, I can't sleep. So I get up and then I think I didn't know what to do. Even though I had this grand plan of what I would do in pre-labor, somehow when it was happening, I didn't know what I wanted, right? So I was a little bit lost there. I sat on my exercise ball and that didn't feel comfortable. It, it just didn't feel right for me. I tried to take a shower, and that was that was no good. I didn't like it at all. It was so uncomfortable. So the only thing I found comfortable was to sit down and do nothing and and not be active. And I just want to put it out there that if you if you're like me and you have grand plans and you know the theory of, you know, being active, being upright, squatting and and helping to open up the pelvis and and helping with the descent of the baby and you just know all of this and you get to labor and you just want to sit down or lay down and that's all you want to do that's totally okay because that is exactly what I've done and that is all I wanted to do and that is all I could do as well it was good because I needed to get in my zone obviously to try and you know cope with this <laughs> so to me being seated on the bed I couldn't even have my back against the pillow and, and, and actually rest my back. I literally sat on the edge of the bed. I was half falling asleep, half in my zone. So when I wasn't having a contraction, I was going into a mini sleep at that point. And then I would wake up, breathe through the contractions, and then I would go back to sleep, essentially. I had heard it before, and I, I just couldn't imagine it. And then and then this is what happened to me. And so therefore, I was like, wow, it is a real thing. Like, it's surreal to go into microsleeps when you're in, in between contractions. It was totally blowing my mind, really. There came a point where I, so I wanted to stay at home as long as possible, but there came a point where my contractions were three minutes apart. They were lasting 60 seconds, pretty much on average. And the hospital was about, it was a 25 to 30 minute drive. And I was calculating how many contractions I would have in the car, which I had always heard that the car ride when you're in labor is the most uncomfortable car ride in your life. And so therefore I was like, oh, I kind of want to stay home. I was somehow coping. I was in my zone. I was able to breathe through, you know, those contractions. But then at the same time, well, you know, I, I kind of didn't want to leave it too late and not be able to cope with the 25 to 30 minute drive. So therefore, uh, I think at that point, I had been in pre-labor pre slash labor for about five hours, five to six. And basically at that point, I decided that I thought it was the right time to start getting in the car and to start going to the hospital because I felt like it was the right time. I felt, and I know my midwife had told me, you'll know when to go to hospital. And I was like, but how am I going to know? But yeah, it's right. At that point, I I remember going, I, we need to start this process now because otherwise I'm not sure what's next. And then I, I'm just not sure I'll, I'll even be able to get myself in the car, right? So anyway, we made ourselves, well, we made our way 
out. We got into the car. The car ride was actually not too bad. I, I was still in my zone. I was still able to to breathe through and use breathing techniques, and that seemed to be fine. The car ride actually went a lot faster than I thought, so I had my eyes closed for most of the car ride, but I would open them at little intervals to kind of see where we were at. And I remember thinking, oh, okay, yeah, we're almost there. I just wanted to to check that we were making it any time soon basically so we made it to the hospital and that's the funny part where I was never told what to do when you get to hospital I was just told you get to hospital and you go to the maternity ward right so when I get to hospital and I'm having contractions every three minutes and from the car park to the entrance of the hospital which is not that far when I've already had three contractions at that point when I get to hospital the last thing that's on my mind and I didn't know you even had to the last thing I'm thinking about is signing in right and getting the wristband no no I just went straight down the hall and I went to maternity ward and I remember the lady at the reception she gave me a look of uh where is she going (laughs) I think it was pretty obvious where I was going. (laughs) I didn't stop, okay? I I didn't have time for this. So I didn't know you had to sign in. I was never told this. So I don't know how I was meant to know. So I just walked straight to the maternity ward. And actually, I met my midwife on the way there. I had another three or four contractions in the hospital. And it's not a big one. (laughs) It's a pretty straightforward path too. But anyway, I had so many contractions. I was just like... Yeah, look, I'm, I'm at that point, I'm not even thinking I'm in labor. At that point, I think I'm in pre-labor and I think this is going to go on for a long, long time. And this is really interesting because in my head, I had this this clock in my head where I thought my labor was going to go on for 24 hours minimum. So in my head, I know what time my labor started at. I know what time it is now. And I know it hasn't been 24 hours. So therefore, I'm like, oh, I've still got like something like 16 hours to go. Point of this story, don't don't be like me. Don't, don't have a clock in your head of how long you think your labor should be. I don't know where I got that from. I, I do not know why. But anyway, so at this point, I'm thinking I'm in pre-labor. Even though I'm getting contractions pretty much every three minutes, they're lasting 60 seconds. I'm breathing through them. It, it is a job and I'm exhausted because I haven't slept much and it's obviously a lot of work. So anyway, I get to the maternity ward and I sit on the bed and then my midwife, she knew of uh, my birth preferences. She knew she knew how it was, obviously, and she was there. That's actually uh, the most important point of this story is she ended up being there at my birth because her induction birth was scheduled for later that day and she ended up being there at that birth too. So somehow she had two births in the space of like, 24 hours I think that was probably insane for her so my midwife met me and you know she knew me she knew how I was she knew I was like super active and stuff so then I sit on the bed and she's really good she's trying to tell me you know like oh do you want to do this do you want to go in the shower do you want to sit on the exercise ball do you want do you want me to unroll you know the mat do you want to be on all fours and and I'm like no I just want to sit on the bed (laughs) 
and I just sat on the bed and then I breathed through my contractions. And she had done an amazing job at setting up the room, actually. I remember that when I walked in the room, it was so good because she had turned the lights off and she had put, I think it was like a projector light, which projected little stars or something on the ceiling. I think there was a salt lamp on. And, and then obviously it's it's still a hospital room. Didn't feel like it was a hospital room and she'd closed the curtains and stuff. Yeah, and so I remember that I really liked that. And then I sat on the bed. And then from there on, I, you know, they say it's normal when you go to the hospital to feel like your labor is stalling because, you know, it's obviously a different environment. Even when you know the hospital, you know your midwife, it's obviously a very sterile and, and so on environment. And that's, I definitely felt that. So when I got to the hospital, I felt I was still having contractions, but I definitely felt like my labor was stalling. I could feel that things were not progressing as quickly. It's kind of hard to explain because I was still having contractions. They were still regular. They were still intense, but somehow I could feel that something was slowing down inside of me. The other thing was I had been able to get in my zone and sometimes I would kind of lose my zone when I was, you know, in the car or at home, but then I would be able to get back into it. When I got to hospital, I definitely lost my zone there. It was, I don't think I prepared enough for that change of environment for that transition but yeah it was really hard for me to get back into it so I had a lot of trouble there from there on it was a really difficult labor because I didn't have my zone and I started panicking and obviously <laughs> when you do hit a birthing they tell you not to panic because that obviously creates that releases adrenaline and so on I definitely had a lot of adrenaline going on because I was in a lot of pain at that point obviously from there on the the hospital part was really difficult because I had lost my zone I wasn't using my breathing techniques as well as I had been I was probably producing way too much adrenaline and therefore I was in a lot of pain and that was really hard and mentally that was really hard and I was exhausted I definitely felt like I hit a wall at that point like a really big one a really big wall and all I wanted was the epidural so I asked for the epidural from the time that I got into the birthing suite and so in the birthing suite it was just Jason and my midwife and they both knew that I didn't want an epidural I I had my reasons for not wanting it and so they kept reminding me of the reasons why I didn't want an epidural, which was I, I knew that and I could hear them. And then my midwife kept, because I kept asking for the epidural, she would try and, and confirm whether I actually wanted one or whether I was just saying it because I'm in despair. Anyway, they ended up working out that I was in despair. Like I wanted pain relief, but I knew I didn't want an epidural. So I, I kept going. And I changed position as well, which was difficult. <laughs> I remember I was thinking, I can't move. I can't do anything. I, I had this very, I think, negative mindset of once I lost my zone, it was really hard from there on. And mentally and physically, I was exhausted. So changing position was like the hardest thing I had ever done in my entire life. But anyway, I changed position and that was that was really good. But then I started feeling like I needed to push. I didn't really have the urge to push, but I felt like I needed to push. And it ended up being that I had a cervical lip and that was in the way. That was really bugging me because I could feel that I needed to push, but I, d I didn't have the urge to push. So I, and also 
my waters had not released yet. And so I had the bag of water at the front that was kind of dangling down. And that was, I could feel that there was something in the way, if that even makes any sense. And so I started to push, which I started to push too early, basically. But I felt like I had to push something out of the way. So I started to push, but it was really, it wasn't right because I wasn't actually pushing the baby. I was trying to push this thing that was in my way. So in amongst all of this, which almost sounds like chaos at this point, I was still thinking I was in pre-labor, <laughs> just to put it out there. Because mentally I'm like, oh, this is going to go on for such a long time. I'm going to be pushing for like six hours and so on. So I wasn't in pre-labor. My, my midwife, actually, I didn't know if I wanted uh, vaginal examinations. I had said, ask me the question on the day. I don't know if I want one or not. And on the day, I felt like I wanted to have one to, I think, check where I was up to. And so my midwife did one when I arrived, and I was happy for her to do it, obviously. And she didn't tell me what number I was at, right? And I think that was a good call because when basically she told me later when I arrived at the hospital, she thought I was in transition. So she's fully expecting me to be seven to eight centimeters and I was four. And then she did another vaginal examination. It was probably about maybe an hour and a half later, maybe, but I, I don't know about time at this point right at this point I was I was in 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 a real pit of despair I I couldn't do it I kept saying I can't do it I can't do it uh I need to sleep I need the epidural I want an epidural I kept saying that basically that probably sounds like transition to a lot of people so at that point I was actually eight to nine centimeters but she didn't tell me and that's when I actually needed to know because if I had known that I was that far into it then I would have gone oh okay I'm almost there even though we know that dilation is not a linear process and you can dilate two centimeters in six hours just like you can dilate two centimeters in 30 minutes but yeah, at that point, I would have needed to know, and she didn't tell me. So I, so I thought, oh, I, I must be maybe still the same as I was, you know, an hour and a half ago, or maybe I've even gone backwards. <laughs> Who knows? And so I, I think during this time that I was nine, I think I, I was pushing at that point again for for the reason that I was saying before. And so I think this is a part which is quite blurry. I don't think I remember it really, really well. But at some point, I, I kept pushing. And and then my baby was born, <laughs> basically. And and I remember when she was born, there was this instant relief. Like obviously, I felt the ring of fire before, and that was really, really super painful. And I think even then, I'm thinking that birth is still going to go on for another ever long, right? And then she's born, and I remember feeling this relief instantaneously of going, "Oh well, it's over." <laughs> And then I don't think I had any more pain in my body, right? I was like, oh, it's done. It's over. Wow. Basically, to summarize, because I think at that point, this is quite, you can probably tell that it's quite blurry in my head and I'm actually not, I'm trying to remember, but I'm actually not even sure of what, of how. Uh, in what sequence things happened. At that point, I looked at the clock. Actually, I really wanted to check that someone knew what time my child was born at so I checked the clock just as a side note I remember thinking I've done it like I, I did it you know I I wanted a vaginal hospital birth with little to no intervention and hopefully with no drugs 
and I'd done exactly that and I had a very undisturbed birth. My midwife was there as a bystander. She would check, she would do Doppler checks during the labour and she was really skilled in not not making me move. She would just say, oh, are you happy for me to check the Doppler? And she would just squeeze herself in the space that I gave her and she would do the Doppler check and then things were fine. There was no alarming signs. So then she would just go back to doing what she was doing, which I don't know what she was doing exactly, but she was definitely a bystander. She was watching and that was amazing. So I had a very undisturbed birth where Jason was my main support and then my midwife was there to check that things were going fine and she had some word of encouragement as well. But other than that, you know, she didn't intervene. She didn't put any pressure on me. You know, she didn't say you've got to be, you know, you've got to stop pushing or you've got to start pushing or, you know, you've only got this time left. No, it was all so undisturbed. And then it was the same when it came to the placenta birth. So after my baby was born, the high of the birth was insane. I loved it. It was nothing that I have ever experienced and nothing that I have experienced again yet. I remember being so high and I I was like, wow. <laughs> for, for the next three hours, all I could say was, wow. <laughs> that was so funny. And so we didn't know the gender of the baby. We didn't find out for another 10 minutes, I think, because we were just so happy that that she was born. And I kept looking at her, wondering if she was a boy or a girl, and I couldn't tell from just her face. And and it didn't matter, right? And so I was like, oh, I don't, I don't need to find out just yet. So so we did skin to skin straight away. I got into a more comfortable position, and I think my midwife checked me at that point, and I had a second-degree tear. And then she called the obstetrician to come and repair it, and I think he took probably a good hour to come anyway and during that time yeah I was holding my daughter which I didn't know was my daughter at at that point and that was it there was no interference there was no intervention there was nothing you know they, they didn't need to take her they didn't need to weigh her they didn't need to dress her you know it was great it was amazing we tried to start breastfeeding but she wasn't latching and we found out later why because when when she was born, she wasn't in the birth canal for a very long time, so she didn't get a lot of long squeezes to get the fluid out. So she wasn't breastfeeding because basically she still had a lot of fluid in um, in her stomach and so on. And so later on, she actually vomited. She brought up that fluid, and then she was able to latch better. But we didn't know that at the time. Yeah, we found out she was a girl and it was amazing. It was, yeah, I don't know. I was so high and I, I still am thinking of it now. It, it it was, yeah, it was amazing. I thought thought she was a boy the whole time. And then at 38 weeks, I thought she was a girl. And then she was a girl. So, so then I was like, oh, I'm right. <laughs> we stayed in hospital for 24 hours, I think. Um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go home or if I wanted to continue to get help with breastfeeding because it was a bit hit and miss. I had trouble to get a good latch and I wasn't sure if I was doing it right and it was quite difficult I found it quite hard so yeah I I wasn't sure if I wanted 
to stay in hospital to get help. But thing is, when you're on the postpartum ward, they come very often to do, you know, checks and to check the baby's temperature and so on. And it's kind of really disruptive. And so it was kind of like, I think I kind of wanted to be, you know, at home because, well, then you're less disrupted. And there was no medical reason to, to stay. You know, everyone was fine. I had a physiological third stage as well. So I didn't have any syntocin to expel the placenta I didn't have a big blood loss so yeah there was no medical reason to stay so we went home and because I was in the MGP my midwife came to see us for the next six weeks so she came pretty much weekly to come and check on us to weigh the baby and to check that everything was all good and to you know answer questions and so on so that was really good because it was a transition and it was one that I didn't prepare for I didn't prepare well for breastfeeding I, I didn't do much I did a bit of research but I didn't know it's hard to practice or <laughs> to think about the positions when you haven't got the baby like I need to practice to understand and I obviously didn't have the baby to practice with so I found it really hard to educate myself on breastfeeding I think so I didn't do a lot of breastfeeding education definitely that I should have done a bit more that would have helped I was lucky that once we got the hang of the latching and you know position to breastfeeding then things were pretty smooth sailing so that was good but I I had a lot of pain sensitivity I should say sensitivity around the nipples that was really difficult I I felt like it was it was really difficult and I wasn't prepared for it again like I had heard of it I knew it was a thing I didn't understand it'd be that degree of sensitivity so yeah that was quite difficult and then mentally the transition was actually quite difficult like I had obviously wanted to be a mom for a long long time and I had wanted this baby for a long long time well I think I had definitely the the baby blues it was almost heading towards uh, postpartum depression but I think because my midwife was there and we were able to chat through you know, my feelings and how I felt. And like, I knew the the thoughts I had were not that they were irrational, but like I knew for me, I knew they didn't make sense, but I still had them. And it was difficult to have had such a good pregnancy. And, you know, I obviously wanted all of this and then I had it. And then all of a sudden I felt really sad. It, it was really difficult to comprehend and to understand even though I've worked in mental health it's I don't know I feel like I was immune to it somehow so I think it's important to say that yeah in the first six weeks I, I felt really sad and I felt like I had this whole anxiety about time was passing too quickly so and then I think I had a lot of fear around my partner going back to work because I was like oh I'm not sure how I'm gonna go you know like am I gonna be able to look after this baby I'm not sure um I wasn't sure how yeah how I was gonna be looking after this baby on my own right with no one around no one to to say oh can you help with this or you know am I doing this right I, I felt like I, I couldn't do it on my own so so yeah I had this whole even though he had Jason had six weeks of work I think it, it felt like she was born and he was going back to work the next week pretty much so yeah there was a lot of anxiety there around time passing and him I think returning to work I think if he wasn't returning to work or if he was in a you know a, a model where he was definitely you know at home and he had really flexible hours that would have been different but it wasn't the case so it was like uh 
oh, how am I going to go? But then, you know, that subsided before he went back to work. And, and then obviously we took it day by day, right? Like things were, you know, obviously it was all, it was all new. You know, you really sleep deprived initially. We took it day by day and things, you know, obviously I, I looked after her fine, you know, I was fine on my own, but I don't know, somehow I felt like I couldn't do it initially, but then I did. So, you know, who knows, right? Yeah. And so fast forward a little bit, I wasn't sure when we had her, I pretty much knew that I wanted a sibling. Well, actually, no, I wasn't sure I wanted to have another one because I think a lot of parents to an only child will understand that because the love you have for your child is so intense, consuming, that you feel like you wouldn't be able to give the same amount of love and attention to the next one. And the other thing was I was thinking, oh, the next one will not get this one-on-one special time obviously the attention would be divided between you know our daughter and then this one and so I thought oh that's quite unfair for the next one and also I didn't want to have my attention shift to another child for my daughter's sake as well so initially I wasn't sure if I wanted to have another one but then as she got a little bit older things I think things fell into place and and I think I I felt like yeah I I feel like I want to have another one right and then we decided to start trying when she was I think she was 13 months old and we got pregnant straight away that was a shock that was a total shock because we had taken 10 months to conceive our daughter and we fell pregnant on the first go and that was just about as shocking as taking 10 months was so there you go so very interesting journey very different pregnancy which if you want to listen to my pregnancy series part one part two they're up there on the podcast I so I'm currently 31 weeks pregnant and I will do a birth story after this one's born we don't know the gender either of this one so I don't know if it's a boy or a girl and I will take you back through the whole pregnancy and and the birth and so on and what it's like to have two children two under two as they say because when this one is born my daughter will be just about 22 months so there will be 22 months age gap between them yeah and so there you go I will leave it there otherwise it will be a very very long episode and I've already spoken about my first first and second trimester so heavily listen on the podcast I'll put the links in the show notes anyway that was my birth story finally recorded it I hope you got anything from it yeah thank you so much for listening thank you so much for supporting this show it means a lot to me to know that some people actually care about you know what I have to say (laughs) so thank you so much and hope you guys enjoyed this episode and I'll see you guys next week for a brand new episode Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to get notified of when a new episode comes out, please subscribe to this show on your podcast listening platform. Also, I would really appreciate it if you could leave me a review on Apple Podcast or share this episode so that other mom can find it. If you would like to tell your own pregnancy, birth or parenting story, please head to the show notes and you will find a form there to get in touch with me. Again, thank you so much for listening and I will be with you again next week for a new episode.